Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get a weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. Our latest bonus episodes include a discussion of the Star Wars spinoff The Mandalorian and the Disney animated movie Frozen 2. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tosh Robinson, here with Keith Epps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. For our next two episodes, we'll be considering two films about murder mysteries and the people out to solve them, whether it's by interrogation and deduction or putting in the the shoe leather work to, um, what are you guys doing? Bringing the old trench coat out of the storage. It's got holes in the pockets, but they match the holes in my heart. And the big hole in the story, you're trying to tell us about what we're covering this week. Uh, didn't we already do the stereotyped noir detective voice gag in the intro for our episodes on Spider-Man 2 and Into the Spider-Verse? That's what some of these yegs might think, but we've been digging a little deeper. We figure there's more to this whole detective voice thing than you've been telling us, Robinson. No, no, it's just kind of a silly bit we do at the beginning of episodes to let people know what films we're covering. Covering, eh? As in covering up? Who are you covering up for here, Robinson? What are you trying to hide behind all this silly voice chicanery? What they didn't know was that I write these intros like this just because I think it's hilarious to hear them do goofy voices. But what I didn't know was that it was all going to rebound on me, and sooner than I thought. Hey, who's you talking to over there? Nothing, nobody. I'm just breaking the fourth wall a little bit. But you's talking about stuff you don't even know yet. I mean, the version of me that's writing this script knows what's coming, but the version of me that's currently reading it here hasn't gotten to that part yet. So in this timeline... This is sounding like some sort of twisted, complicated conspiracy. Yeah, well, okay, that's the point. See, in this episode pairing, we're looking at a couple films that both play around with time and draw on but break narrative murder mystery convention and generally mess around with the audience's expectation for their genre. Hey, you guys, look. I found a folded up note in my school locker that explains all of this. And whoever left it for me left something else. Sorry. (laughs) Let me just do my normal voice. Oh, gosh. That's a relief. Anyway, the note says this. This week, we're looking at two films by writer-director Ryan Johnson, his debut film, Brick, and his latest film, Knives Out. With Brick, a lo-fi, small-scale neo-noir, Johnson transposed the familiar beats and some of the language of 1940s noir mysteries to a suburban California high school, where the characters play simultaneously like 1940s mugs and vamps, and like ordinary teenagers dealing with the complications of drugs, romance, and who sits with who at lunch. Knives Out operates on a much larger scale, with an ensemble cast full of stars, and with bigger and brighter comedy. But it harkens back to Brick in the way it upends the conventions of mystery stories, with a structure that tells the audience a lot more than they usually learn early on about how the plot-inducing murder happened. In this sense, they're more of a... Ah, crap, now I'm doing it. I don't even know where this Fedoran trench coat came from. I guess I should have seen this twist coming since I predicted it earlier, but somehow it all came together so quickly that I didn't. Anyway, both these films are daring genre experiments from someone who knows and loves the mystery genre enough to unpack it and play with its various parts to see which ones are necessary and which ones can be entirely upended. We'll get into the nitty-gritty of both of these films and see what shakes down unless the bulls get wise to the stats and we have to heal it. No, no, we're all out of weird twists at this point. We really are just going to sit here and talk about these movies, and I don't think the police will care. Oh, uh, um... Great. Let's uh, do that then. Brendan? Emily? I really screwed up. Screwed up how? The brick. What? I I didn't know it was bad, but the pin's on it now. You gotta help me. Slow down now. This isn't good? No. Emily said words I didn't know. Tell me if they catch. Brick? No. Tug? Tug might be a drink, like milk and vodka. Pin? You know the kingpin. Dope runner, right? Big time. What are you gonna do? She asked for my help. I just wanna know if she's okay. So what's first? I'm gonna start shaking things up. So you didn't know this boy? No, sir, never seen him. And he just hit you. 
They asked for my lunch money first. Good thing I brown bagged it. In a 2006 interview with Rotten Tomatoes, conducted around the release of Brick, writer-director Ryan Johnson laid out the guiding principle behind the movie. Quote, the overall approach, and not just for the actors, but also for the designers, the cinematographer, and the whole crew, was to make sure that we were creating a world instead of imitating one, unquote. For Johnson, that meant that even though he was borrowing language and a story format from the mysteries of Dashiell Hammett, he didn't want to be beholden to any particular aspect of noir mysteries. Brick isn't a black and white throwback, and it's pretty short on detectives sitting at desks with their faces half in shadow or striped by light coming in through window awnings, symbolizing the duality of human light and darkness. A lot of Brick takes place in sunny, mundane settings outdoors, around the back of a high school or in various parking lots. It has its own unique visual language, mostly lo-fi indie realism, but with occasional little stylistic flourishes around moments where the protagonist is emerging from or losing consciousness. Between the creativity of these little visionary experiments and the colorful script, which sometimes has its high schooler characters delivering fairly familiar teen dialogue and sometimes has them talking in the slanted cant of 1940s gangsters, Brick does feel like it takes place in its own heightened surreal world. One where being a drama kid involved in the school play equates to being a chameleonic schemer with no authentic face. And being a smart kid equates to being an information broker and fixer, always ready to trade in facts about who's lunching with who. Made for under $500,000, which took six years for Johnson to raise, Brick was the definition of an indie darling, a movie visualized and scripted by one man over the course of years, funded on a shoestring, edited at home, and then brought to Sundance where it sold. It wasn't a huge hit, but it was the kind of memorable critics darling that got Johnson a lot of attention and got him a deal for his next movie, The Brothers Bloom. And in certain circles, it became a significant cult hit. Joseph Gordon-Levitt stars as Brendan, a high school loner licking his wounds after a breakup with Emily, a girl he loves who fell in with the wrong crowd. The film opens with Brendan silently contemplating Emily's corpse, dumped in a culvert with her hand trailing in the water. It's a moment familiar from the opening of David Lynch's Twin Peaks, or from The River's Edge, a moment where the discarded body of a young woman sets a lot of events in motion, but particularly hits home for a few key people around her. Brendan doesn't want the police involved in investigating Emily's death. He's convinced that even if they catch the killer, they won't know enough to dig into the people behind that killer. And he's right. He's uniquely suited for delving into the undercurrents and social connections of his own high school, where he's an outsider, but not the usual underdog loser of high school movies. His peers don't always seem to know what to make of him. He's outside the system, just as Hammett's PIs were neither cops nor criminals and could operate in the space between both of them. But where P.I. stories are often about experienced, world-weary characters who get dragged in over their heads because they're messing with the wrong people, Brendan is unique. He has the recklessness and conviction of immortality that are so common in teenagers, and he deliberately pushes himself in over his head and then just keeps going. That's one way Brick distinguishes itself as more than a derivative of classic noir and more than a subtly comedic riff on it. Johnson uses the point of view of teenagers, the heightened emotions of high school and especially high school romance, the stoner nihilism and sports star self-importance, and all the little outsized immediacies of the setting to heighten the stakes and everyone's sense of self-importance. It can be hard to believe an adult femme fatale doesn't have at least some sense of self-consciousness about playing out character cliches, but Brick's teen vamps and self-styled thugs are utterly believable in their belief that everything they're doing is important and powerful, and that no one older than them could understand. One of the things that makes Brick work so well is the fine-tuned performances, and how they all do seem to take place in their own unique world, a recognizable mirror of our own, but distinctive at the same time. It has its own language, it has its own crises, and in Brendan, it has its own tough, self-destructive, slowly disintegrating hero. After Brick, Johnson went on to do more offbeat riffs on known genres, playing around with con movie conventions with the Brothers Bloom, playing around with time and time travel in Looper, infuriating fanboys by pulling away from the usual fantasy hero tropes in Star Wars The Last Jedi, and most recently, deconstructing murder mysteries again with the new Knives Out. But Brick still feels like his most personal film, a post-film school flex that turned his fanish obsession with the genre into a fresh way of approaching a familiar story. As he put it in that same interview, quote, With teen movies, we like to be the grown-ups looking down at that silly part of life and drawing neat conclusions and morals from it. Brick has none of that. Its substance, for me at least, lies in capturing, in a very heightened, bold, and impressionistic way, what those teen years felt like when you were in them, not from analyzing them from an adult perspective. All right, you got me. I'm a scout for the Gophers. Been watching your game for a month, but that story right there has clenched it. You got heart, kid. How soon can you be in Minneapolis? Yeah? Cold winters, but they got a great public transit system. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah? 
There's a thesaurus in the library. Yeah, it's under Y. Good, I'll wait. Who invited you? To the parking lot? Gee, I guess I invited myself. Maybe you want to go somewhere more private. You? Sure. So we usually start these discussions with what's your history with the film? What do you think of the film? I, I kind of want to twist to that a little, I guess, in keeping with uh, the twistiness <laughs> of uh, these films. And uh, just start with, like, how does this movie play for you now, given how much more do we know about Ryan Johnson than we probably all did the first time we saw this movie? I mean, for me, it plays just as well as it did in 2006. What I would say about Ryan Johnson in general, though, is that this film, maybe more now than before, and you'll probably disagree with this, Tasha, feels like a calling card movie. And that it was like, it's a first film and it's very showy and it's using all the tools of the cinema and it's got all of this very high concept idea that he's working through in this catchy dialogue. And I think there's a sense with this movie of it being an exercise, I think a very, you know, a rich exercise. I don't want to diminish it as such, but I, I feel like later films of his, I just think now his his, his vision is just a lo- is a lot more developed and sophisticated than in Brick. Brick is, a, is a, just extre- an extremely precocious first film. It feels more considered. There's a looseness to Johnson's more recent film, while the, while they are still like very tight and tightly plotted, tightly filmed movies. They have a sort of an energy about them, and Brick to me feels just a little more studied, a little more like controlled, or like a little more obviously controlled, I guess, than um, like something like Looper or Knives Out, which feels a little bit more of a ride. Brick feels a little more, like I said, studied. And I, that, that's not a criticism, you know, but like going back to it for me this time, first of all, I had like not very strong memories of my first time watching this film. Like I had a strong impression of it, of the of the look of this film, especially that opening scene and the tunnel to nowhere you know there's there's a lot of very striking visuals but you know i had no recollection of the specifics of the plot i remembered that characters talked a certain way you know in this sort of noirish language but i had no real recollection of what that language was it's been like 10 years since i've seen this movie so revisiting it in the context of having just seen knives out which just feels like it has so much of the same sort of stylistic hallmarks and storytelling hallmarks, but it just feels so much more, I don't want to say fun, because it's not that Brick isn't fun, but you know, it's just a little, a little looser, more confident, where I think Brick feels like Scott is kind of saying a bit of a, you know, trying to establish something about who he is as a filmmaker, what he cares about as a filmmaker, what kind of stories he wants to tell. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny. I, I kind of came into it thinking this was even more confident than I remembered it being because I think I think he really, it is very confident. I don't want to diminish that at all. Sure, <laughs> but I, I think he commits to this really high concept of, of you know, high school noir and just it just goes with it in ways that really and kind of hopes you know i think there's sort of a, a leap of faith that these connections are going to going to work and make sense and they, and they really do there are some directors that just internalize the, the the language of making film and you can see it from the mm-hmm. beginning and i think he's one of those those directors and um you know just some of the low budget lo-fi stylistic tricks like there's that one scene where where one character goes down a dark hallway and the other one comes up a dark hallway, but it's mm-hmm. it's not the, the the second one emerges more you know sooner than she possibly could in real time, but it's it's just I, I know the exact yeah. shot you're talking oh, yeah. about. Sure. It's so good where Laura uh, emerges, uh, and I think it's. Is it as the pin is going in? I believe so. Yeah, they, yeah and, and the, yeah. just the compositions, the way he uses that underpass, the way he kind of takes stuff from Lynch, but kind of does its own thing. But the, really, the biggest way this movie changed for me over the years was I find myself taking it more seriously. I felt like there's a little bit, a little, a bit of Bugsy McGlone quality to it, where you have all these, you know, characters speaking in this in this grown up movie voice that mm-hmm. they don't, they don't, it's not natural to them. But this, every watch this movie the same day, the New York Times just ran this devastating interactive feature on the opioid crisis by using a uh, Ohio high school yearbook and like going through and showing how each and every person was touched by opioids. And it's like, I mean, there's no way Johnson could have known that was coming, but, but I mean, I think, you know, not that high schools didn't have drug problems before, but the degree to which this high school is deeply involved in the high end of the heroin trade is of course an exaggeration. But, you know, with within a decade, you're going to have high school sinking this deep in, into problems with drugs. And I found I found that kind of kind of chilling and, and, and prescient in ways that uh, made the film more disturbing. I mean, it's, it's still it's, it's there's a lightness to the film and it made me laugh. But um, but the tragedy has only deepened for me over time. 
Scott, you said at the beginning <laughs> of all this that you thought that I would disagree with everything you were saying, and mm. I, I honestly don't. I certainly don't disagree that it's a, a calling card film. I don't agree that it. I don't. <laughs> I'm not used to saying I, I don't disagree with you. I can get can't get the words out. <laughs> I don't disagree that it's it's thought through and kind of rigorous in maybe a stiffer way than his other movies. And mm -hmm. I don't disagree with anything Genevieve said about it being you know, kind of like intellectualized and, and thought through. I just, the only aspect of that I would disagree with is if you mean it at all in a denigrating way. No, I, I, I don't. I don't. I mean, the way I think of it is almost like as an introduction, you feel comfortable and excited by a film like Brick because it's like, okay, this guy is speaking in a higher language than, than a lot of first time filmmakers would. Like you just know like, oh, there's a there's somebody like you see the opening bit and it's like, oh, he's been watching David Lynch, <laughs> you know, Twin Peaks. I mean he's a fan of that. And you hear the dialogue and it's like, wow, he's the, the, he really understands, you know, noir and you know and Dashiell Hammond or what all that stuff is, is present. And so you're immediately kind of you know and then of course you appreciate the look of the film too i mean I, you know we've been using the word low fi and i've kind of i cringe somewhat at that because it is a 35 millimeter production and you know and, and i think it could have been shot for a whole lot less and it maybe looked not quite as good as it does it's a really good looking movie oh yeah when um, i say lo-fi I, I don't mean like cheap i don't mean like it it looks like mumblecore yeah. i just mean it's not a hugely involved production you know it's a small cast yeah. in a, a limited number of settings and it's not hugely heightened. Like the, the dialogue is heightened. The intellectualism of it is heightened. But it's not for the most part, like the, leaving aside the car in the parking lot confrontation, mm -hmm. which is one of my favorite sequences yeah. in the film. Oh, between, between uh, Tug, Tug and, and Brendan. Brendan. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that is very stylized mm -hmm. and, and camera tricksy in a lot of ways. But an awful lot of this movie is just it's very quiet from a directorial perspective. Like that doesn't mean it's not like beautifully shot and beautifully rendered. Mm -hmm. It just means it's not a showy film in a lot of well, ways. He, busts, he kind of busts it out when he needs to, the style, right? You were talking about a specific shot that you remembered from the movie as being, being stylized. And I think when you get the scene like uh, the party that Brendan goes to with all of the rich kids, like, you know, at any time, any time we're dealing with uh, Laura, that it just goes full noir with uh, all the shadow play and that, that sort of thing. So I think it's one of those situations where you know certain choices had to be made for budgetary reasons and for time reasons and those choices were about limiting locations you know get, but within those limits it's kind of like let's really get the most out of what we have and i think and brick certainly does that uh regarding the 35 millimeter scott did you happen to go back and read your interview with johnson from after the film came out on the ev club because <laughs> no. i did and oh, you and you asked him, and you asked him about shooting on on film rather than uh, as you called it then DV or HD, <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I just I thought it was an interesting uh, response. Uh, Johnson says it's a weird phenomenon that at this budget level HD actually doesn't save you much money because you have to figure in printing film back out at the end of the day, mm. which if you do it right eats up a lot of what you saved in production. So I just think it's interesting to note in the when we're talking about shooting on thirty five millimeter. Yeah, that is, uh, well, so that's interesting budget. in general, right? Because you do. You, you still had, you know, no matter how cruddy those movies looked, you still had to strike film prints out of them, <laughs> which is very expensive. It's worth noting also that the, the same cinematographer has stayed with him for every film, Steve mm -hmm. Yedlin, who's kind of kind of came, came up through the ranks. Same with, producer with too. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a funny story in there. And the about same him. actor who's in everything he does too, right? <laughs> yeah, and the sure. same uh, music. His cousin Nathan does uh, music. I, I don't, th I don't think he did it for Star Wars, obviously, no. but he's he's used him for. And that's a, films. a pretty common thing for people who started out in the indie world is kind of like bringing along the people with them that that made them the people that helped to define their visions, especially if they got to do that first film the way they wanted to. But Yedlin in particular was apparently heavily responsible for getting Brick made in the first place. Mm. Uh, apparently he was already working on sets like as a grip like he he was actually involved in film at that time and Johnson already had the script so Yedlin was kind of peddling the script around in a very hey the producer's on the set let's hand him the script kind of way mm. that comes up in a lot of Hollywood horror stories but eventually he got it to somebody who looked at it and said there's something here and helped them raise the money and that's how the film got made in the first place was because of Yedlin yeah it, but Johnson could have dumped him for, for some French guy and he didn't do it so that's interesting <laughs> <laughs> 
That's what you. That's what you're supposed to do after making your your big indie film is that you start start working with French cinematographers. But he didn't. He uh, he he has this kind of core group that he likes to kind of keep working with over and over again. I mean, I, if you look if you look at Johnson's films, I, th- I think it's very clear why he would want to keep working with the same cinematographer. You know, his mm-hmm. needs are very specific, and I think Yedlin's doing a, a really terrific job. Well, we'll probably get into it more with uh, with Knives Out, but there's that's also a film with just a very specific look man i i could get into i've i've got this gigantic uh piece that may never actually run we'll find out what the story is but uh yedlin is working on some very interesting technological things right now in terms of basically digital algorithms that make digital look exactly like film hmm. and uh we've we have this huge long piece that we put together for the verge that they ended up not running when i switched jobs and i'm Still going to have to figure out where exactly that's going to go. But yeah, Yedlin's kind of a a pioneer uh, in terms of stuff that he's doing right now. And it's really interesting, Mm. um, specifically what he did with Knives Out. Tasha, I want to turn your question back at you, because I know that this is a a movie you have professed to like a lot over the years. And I'm just wondering if it's uh, if it's changed at all for you on this most recent viewing. This is my one of my all time favorite films. I absolutely love this movie. And I don't revisit it often because I'm not a very big film rewatcher. There's so much stuff I haven't seen uh, that I I feel guilty rewatching films over and over. Same here. (laughs) So every time I have an excuse to revisit it, uh, it's, it's a fun time. Much like you, I never remember the details of the, the mystery. I remember who, I remember how Emily died. I remember who killed her and why, but pretty much everything leading up to it. Like I, I remember the introduction of the pen, the pen, because it's such a memorable moment. But how all of the pieces fit together, I, I just, I don't, I'm not the kind of person that can keep that kind of thing in my head. So I get to kind of rediscover how well this story is put together and the sort of the form of the journey every time I rewatch it. Uh, Johnson has said he was pretty heavily influenced by Chinatown in terms of narrative. Visually, he's drawn on drawing on stuff like the Coen brothers and uh, particularly Sergio Leone movies, which again, I think you can really see in the, the face off between Tug in the car and uh, Brendan standing in the parking lot. And uh, there's just there's a degree to which like all of these bits fit together like the best Coen Brothers movie. Like mm-hmm. the the journey feels like sort of a shaggy dog Chinatown. Uh, one thing leads to the next thing leads to the next thing. And I think in more of a Coen Brothers way though, it feels like exploring a strange community than Chinatown's kind of like long sprawling line of the further you get out on the branch, the weirder things look. But yeah, uh, just all of the little stylistic flourishes. The moment with the garbage bag that comes up over his head when he's having the vision of uh, Emily like looking down the tunnel. Mm-hmm. The weird little camera thing that happens when he uh, when Tug knocks him out after not hitting him with the car. Again, that entire face-off between them, like how fast the car moves, like the the rhythms and pacing of that action sequence, like all of those things are things I just love revisiting over and over and over. So the movie's changed for me since the very beginning in that it's never been the revelation it was the first time. I don't see how it ever could be, but I, I never get tired of rewatching this movie. Well, I mean, one thing, and we'll talk about this with Knives Out too, is that on a plotting level, Johnson is just so far out in front. I've seen the film a few times, and I, I'm in the weeds <laughs> every single time yeah. trying to kind of catch up. I, I'm glad to hear plot. you say that because I, I was feeling like kind of dumb watching this, yeah. the, you know, or in, in, the, in the weeds, as you say. Yeah, and I, and the, the stylized dialogue is definitely a part of it because it's a language that's specific to this film, and you have to kind of get on its wavelength, I think. Yeah, I turned the subtitles on. <laughs> this I did too. The subtitles are actually really helpful in some of, yeah. not just in some of the slang where Brendan's talking about the bulls and the eggs, but in some of the like really small details of dialogue, like things that I would not have gotten if I hadn't seen it in print. I, I found that honestly uh, a little bit of a revelation. But here's the thing about the plot. It's actually really simple. Like so many murder mysteries, when you get down to the end, when Brendan gives his little summary of here's everything that happened, it wraps up into a pretty nicely tight, understandable uh, little experience where you can kind of go back and, and see how all of the bits that you saw stick on to this narrative. I, like, do you still feel a little lost at the end when he explains it all? I'm not really, but I mean, the, the details are very small, though. I mean, if you think about it, like it turns on like a cigarette, 
a mm-hmm. very distinctive type of cigarette that she smokes, and the fact that, that it was her that Emily was afraid of, Laura I'm talking about, that Emily was afraid of, and that uh, and that she was the one driving the car, and all of these, all of this business, it's good. I mean, I mean, I, I like it, and, and again, we'll talk about this with Knives Out, but I, you know, it's great, it's a great feeling, and and, I, and you appreciate Johnson's faith in the audience just to keep up or not <laughs> you know it just he's not gonna he's not gonna spoon feed you any of this stuff and you just you know if and if if you feel comfortable being a little bit confused and struggling a little bit uh with it on a plot level then um then you'll be just fine with the movie but it's it's just, it's just, it's tough it's very tough very dense i use the word unique a lot when i was uh writing the the keynote for this and i'm sort of curious if you guys see this as as much of a unique movie as i do i mean it is like the idea of a genre mashup isn't new uh neo-noirs that reset 40s 40s noir aspects in some kind of like modern day thing isn't new like as keith said there's kind of a bugsy malone aspect (laughs) am i am i overstating how unique this film is Uh, i don't think so i think you know a couple years after this you got sort of the quote-unquote normal version of of a high school noir which was rodica mars great show but you know, yep. you're not. It's, it's not its own world that it creates in in that you know, filled with its own language and and its own like sort of peculiar, just off reality um, approach to to high school life. So uh, yeah, this is an unusual film. Conceptually, it ends up having this very neat overlay between those genres though mm-hmm. between of types that we were familiar with in detective stories and noir stories um, matching up quite nicely with types in a high school mm-hmm. um, drama of, of the rich kids and the popular kids and sort of the burnouts and like all of that stuff plays you know and and um you know i think and i think the film is quite subtle and in 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 good in in dealing with classes as well and how much of a role uh, that ends up playing ultimately in the in the end um, with Laura and her her control over all of this over the situation. I mean, you think the pin is the guy who's going to be pulling all of the strings, and um, you know he's kind of a guy who lives in a crappy house with his mom. Ultimately, <laughs> I think one of the, my favorite jokes in it is is like there's some I think there's some sort of ambiguity about whether or not this is going on under his mom's nose without her knowing it. But then you get her like serving snacks at like his at his four a.m. meeting and everything. So she's just she's just she's in on it as well. Um, you know that's makes me laugh. Yeah, you've got to assume that she's sort of meant to fall into the place of uh, mafia wives. Sure, and that mm-hmm. that cinematic sense of like you knew you you didn't know but you knew. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the the presence of the uh, the rooster pitcher mm-hmm. in just front so and center in this in the middle of this whole very tersa confrontation between Brendan and this you know terribly old like twenty six or something I think is the line uh, criminal the f- the fact that he's sitting there with a cookie on a napkin in front of him uh, while his mom goes through everything in the refrigerator offering it to Brendan like there's a that to me takes the film to a level of surreality that it doesn't necessarily go to at other points and he she gets a he gets a nice country cup <laughs> that's, the line that we that's my time. I mean that's my favorite scene in the whole movie yeah. I just lo- I, that, I th- was so was and remained just so completely delighted by that juxtaposition just of of I mean I'm surprised the juice juice boxes weren't broken <laughs> for that scene because it has that quality of just like oh this is this uh this kind of almost cute domesticity, you know, juxtaposed with, you know, a conf- confrontation with a criminal mastermind. Just so great. That moment where uh, the camera catches the pin from behind for the first time, and then he turns around and we're introduced to Lucas Haas and yeah. how, like, it's been set up for us with with Brain's whole line about how he's 26 or something. But even so, mm-hmm. when he turns around and just, he just, he has such a baby face. And we've been set up. The for... ears are a big part of that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and and the 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 peculiar choice to have him have like one normal shoe and one like giant orthopedic support shoe, uh, which just like makes him even more sort of angular and strange. And also explains why he's called the pin, uh, presumably. Oh, because like one of his, his pins. legs are pins, and oh, he has oh. only thought... one good one, maybe. I just, went, I just went with the obvious kingpin. I didn't really think about, think about it as being a, having a second meaning. Thirteen years later, you you crack the code. <laughs> the other pin drops. Oh, oh I like it. We all see what you did there. <laughs> 
let's uh, why don't we talk a little about uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt? I like his performance is so so important to this movie. I, I'm curious, sort of, what you see in terms of like what he's going for here, or what specifically he brings to the film. Just on the on the way to talking about that, I want to circle back to what Scott was saying about the plot and kind of unpacking that final scene where Brendan kind of explains everything to Laura, and you know the the truth is revealed. But like we didn't mention the sort of the stinger of that, which is what she tells him is that Emily was three months pregnant and based on the timing it's supposed to be Brendan's Mm -hmm. and so like the real like revelation of this mystery turns out to be like why it matters to Brendan he's chasing after the truth about this girl that we really only have the vaguest notion of their relationship you know and it's kind of implied that it didn't maybe last very long because he also, you know, dated Kara. And I mean, they're in high school. So how long do any of these relationships last? You know, so there's, there's sort of the question hovering over Brendan of like, why, why is he like this? Why is he pursuing this? Why? I mean, obviously, it's, it's death, it's murder. But like, why is he so invested in in Emily in, in this moment. And I think that Joseph Gordon-Levitt's performance in that in that last scene in particular is that, to use the same phrase as that pin drops, you know, and the real meaning of what happened kind of floods over him. And by extension, us, I think he, that character just shifts in a really important way in that final scene for me. I feel like the character also shifts in a really important way when you see him on the football field with Emily in that flashback where he has different hair. You know, the, his hair is, mm. is kind of parted and neatly combed. He's not wearing the glasses and he looks like a different kid. He he looks like a much more like dialed back and, and put together like normal and kind of ordinary and boring kid who is engaging in his first big high school breakup and the way he hangs onto her when she tries to get away and in the process knocks her over just Mm. it seems it's so symbolic it's so physically awkward for both of them it makes her seem so much more older and capable than him he's just like a kid grabbing at a toy that's being taken away from him And that sequence is so fraught with just like teen drama that just that feeling of we were in a relationship and now we're not and therefore the world is ending. Like that kind of angst so often permeates noir films. Like so many noir films kind of have that, uh, like I loved a lady and now she's dead and I've, I've got to pursue this to the ends of the earth. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's so much more believable here as, as coming out of that kind of teen, your first relationship is the only important one. And like the entire world revolves around it kind of feeling. Right. And I think that final moment, again, it, it sort of shifts your perception of that teen angst, first love obsession that seems to have been powering Brendan through this. And then there's this sudden addition of like, oh, but it, there was something there. There there was a child there, you know, like it, it was more serious than puppy love. I find that last moment and that final twist uh, very interesting. And I honestly don't know if I really like it. But I think it's definitely uh, bold and and important to the the film. Yeah, in a weird way, she seems I don't want to say more mature, but more in touch with the way the world works. And he does, especially in that in that flashback yeah. scene, like this her whole thing. I'm, I'm going somewhere that you can't can't follow me. Is it's you know it's, it's tragic and and ultimately you know meets she meets a horrible end for it. But it's also you know how things often work, um, especially in high school when you're figuring out who you are. And the whole I'm going somewhere where you can't follow me turns out to be prescient in a terrible way. In yeah. the same sort of way, Brendan's conversation with the brain just after he's seen her dead, where he says she's gone, and brain interprets that as like I can't find her right now, and mm-hmm. says, "Oh, can you can't raise her." And he says, no, I can't. Like, there's there's some playing with dialogue around death in this that is is kind of, like, grimly terrific, I think. Very Laurel Palmer-y for, <laughs> for Emily, yeah. to, Emily to, do the, to do the thing she does and, be where, and kind of be part yeah, of this world that sure. she doesn't want to introduce uh, Brendan into at all. That makes, uh, him, that makes Brendan James. Uh-huh. Yep, it does A much, much James. better version of James. <laughs> oh. Hey, James, come on now. All right, oh, let's, James, let's, James, James had his part. Let's not even get into that. To answer the question about Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I think he's just incredible in the movie, and I don't think the movie works without him. It works without some a performance of extremely high caliber because he's asked to do two things that are not 
seemingly reconcilable on, on the one hand he has to be a 40s gumshoe type and he's got to deliver this extremely stylized dialogue right and he's got to do that convincingly uh, and not seem like he's a kid playing grown-up and then at the same time he has to communicate the emotional stakes of the whole movie and his his own angst and and uh you know these authentic heightened teenage feelings and it's very hard i mean a script level of course Johnson is planning for that. I mean, that's the whole concept of the movie. But you need uh, an actor who's going to be able to work both of those sides convincingly and do it in a way that's integrated. And uh, I think Gordon Levitt does a incredible job. I never saw Manic. Um, oh, which unbelievable. Really? I need to see it. But it's so good. It's, 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 it was, it was a, the short term 12 of its day. Yeah. And that's the film oh, that wow. sold Johnson on this. Mm-hmm. And then there's a whole, you know, this kind of a period where, where he's doing this, just mysterious skin. He's, mm-hmm. I think he's really. You know, it, I, I don't even say consciously trying to shake off the sitcom image because, you know, that that makes it sound like too much like a, of a sort of a, a strategy or something. But, but he's definitely is a period where he's proving that he can do a lot of different yeah. things. It's like, whoa, where did James, <laughs> how did the new James Dean come out of yeah. Third Rock from the Sun? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it is. It was, it, he had quite a run. And I almost, I wonder, I wonder if there was an element with Mysterious Skin of Greg Araki casting him as if he were a TV star like which is something Iraqi did a lot mm-hmm. um, is is kind of draw on you know he always liked to play with like 90210 and bring those types of actors into his movies and he got <laughs> he may have discovered something special though I guess Manic was even was what 2000 2001 oh okay so he would have known yeah. about Manic uh, but yeah I think I think Gord Lovett is really out, outstanding in this movie and it is is the, a big reason why it works at all He's good. I, I like him. I think he does the best with the dialogue. I mean, I, I, all, all the actors, you know, do a, a pretty good job, but he obviously has the most of it and it, the onus is on him to sell it more than anyone else. And I mean, you know, it's a different sort of beast acting with this sort of dialogue versus something more naturalistic where as an actor, you're more concerned with sort of finding your character and motivation and you know this this is almost more like Shakespeare or something where you really have to focus on the musicality and the the rhythm of of what you're saying and and how you're saying it um which is a a different muscle all good actors have that muscle to a certain extent but he is flexing it here a lot harder than than most actors do in most films and i actually i actually found just a little tidbit that uh they spent 3 months rehearsing uh for what would be a 20 day shoot because hmm. there was so much focus on getting that dialogue and the rhythm of it right yeah i'd say it's it's like shakespeare or, or star trek in, in a way where you have to, to, to <laughs> say these lines like they they come naturally to you like this is just this yeah. is just how people speak I don't want to underrate Matt O'Leary as the brain, uh, particularly yes. when it comes to yeah. managing that dialogue, because I do think some of the strongest sequences in the film are the back and forths between them. And I think it's because O'Leary also just really nails that dialogue and makes it sound, if not natural, at least like it's coming from a, like a real person, like it's coming from a real place of comfort and familiarity. And this is just how we all talk. And that character is fairly minor and he's just like, he's a helping character who's just there to serve up information. But you kind of get a whole story just by watching him of this like on the outs nerd that everybody kind of tolerates because he's got the best intel and who seems very comfortable in his own skin. Like he doesn't seem like the kind of nerd who's going to get beaten up in the parking lot. He seems like the kind of nerd that people are going to go to on the sly to find out where the parties are, where they can get the drugs, or who's having... I'm just going to keep coming back to lunch. Who's having lunch with who right now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, and I, I really think... I was impressed, too, by getting into some of these characters. Um, Johnson did not have to do anything with Tug, and he does something with Tug. You know, makes there's there's a that's a much richer character than you would ever get in a movie like this. Henchmen are henchmen. You know, they don't have to do anything but be thugs and beat people up. But Johnson provides them with that extra bit of motivation and that active role in the story and it's very surprising and it's such a bonus you know it's it's also he's just so well cast i mean the the arms on that dude uh <laughs> noah fleiss though and the the shirt that he wears that shows them off like 
I've seen films that take place in either kind of fantasy settings or like old school, like 40s noir uh, settings, where people, for the most part, don't have guns. And when nobody has a gun, suddenly like a knife becomes terrifying again, you know, because a knife will do physical damage to you in a way that a fist won't. And in the same sort of way, like in this in this low key setting where mostly people are not running around with lethal weapons and like the big excitement is Brendan picking a fight with a football player. The, the, the arms on that guy, basically the guns on that dude are kind of terrifying. And when he comes charging across the a space at somebody like, you know, something very painful is going to happen and it's pretty scary. That's pure Miller's crossing, by the way, that charging. I mean, not only, of course, uh, you know, the, if you're talking about a Coen brothers film that influenced brick, it would probably be the most, it'd probably be Miller's crossing, but there's a, that character of uh, the tug kind of running like that. And that, that feels very Coeny for sure. Speaking of uh, guns, I do like the way the introduction of the gun is handled in this in this movie because, like, you know, in the adults as teenagers mode we're we're working in, you know, there's drugs and sex and all all this. Like, very easily it could have been like, oh yeah, guns are just part of this world too. Like everyone has a gun, but it's not that. You know, there is that sort of shock when Tug pulls it out and and that feeling of like, oh this just went to another level that none of us are really comfortable with. And I think that sort of plays into the high school element of the combination in a way that is is interesting in that moment. Another sort of way that we play with the high school motif that I, I just really want to call out because it's one of my favorite things in the movie is Kara's whole character. We keep dropping in throughout the story on Kara and whatever the hell the the drama production is <laughs> that requires her to play like There's a, definitely cabaret. I definitely There's call it there's cabaret some cabaret. And... She she's playing a what looks like a geisha at one yeah. point. Like she has seemingly all of these different characters that, and it just it's completely unremarked on like for all we know it doesn't even have to do anything with the play which what very little we see of the play seems like a, a pretty naturalistic uh, people standing on stage and having dialogue kind of things it's possible that this is just how the drama kid dresses for school every day is just in these like really <laughs> a different character every day really heightened <laughs> things and you know her her moment where she seems ho- horribly emotionally distressed until her little hanger on leaves and then she just completely drops that character and moves into another character suggests that maybe maybe everything about her is false like i really enjoy that character and in, in the wide variety of emotions that megan good brings to it but i also think just checking in on her repeatedly throughout the film and always having her in a different wild costume that just they and they keep getting wilder and wilder i think that's some of the movie's purest comedy and it's like a very deadpan comedy, but I, I think it's hilarious. The hangers on that are always like below eye lines, eye level too. Is, is yeah, what's like, he doing down there? <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't earned the right to be above her waist level, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I just assume he's like kissing her boot or, or literally licking her boot. Maybe yeah. I, he's, he's very low to the ground. The first time there is a sort of like a vague implication that like oral sex might be happening yeah the second time time it's like no she i think she's just using him as a footstool or something (laughs) because there is absolutely no way that that that's happening while that conversation is going on and nobody's commenting on it i i think that there are a bunch of places in this movie where there are little ambiguities that just kind of heighten the story and make it more interesting keith you had one that you were bringing up uh before the the recording i think you know what what brendan's actual background is is kind of slippery because we have assistant vice principal Truman Richard Roundtree which is a nice bit of a nice little nod because Shaft is actually a pretty Hammond inspired uh, story as well but he refers to Brendan as being a good kid and there's this incident where he turned in somebody but later it suggested that he was also sort of a minor dealer as well. And I don't think we have a sense of like what his actual background was. Is that, does anyone actually, is that clear for anyone? It was unclear to me. The way I have always read that ambiguity is that he found out that Jer was dealing and turned him in. And God, that the line that he gives Richard Roundtree, I gave him up to see him eaten, not to see you fed. Mm-hmm. is so good. <laughs> 
But I, I always took that as like he found out about a drug dealer, and and he does say outright that he he got rid of that kid because he didn't want Emily to fall into into his clutches. I think Emily was doing drugs, and he thought that by getting rid of Jer, sure. he could keep her away from drugs somehow. And then the rest of the cover story to then make the rest him look is tougher a cover than he story. Is. Yeah, that, that, but that, I think that you're exactly right that it's ambiguous and it could be read as Richard Roundtree doesn't know the whole truth. Right. I, I like the fact that we don't really know. Mm-hmm. I mean, he may be telling the pin in that moment like a truth that a lot of people aren't aware of. Uh, and I, I don't think we know one way or the other. I'm just, I'm curious now about the school's org chart, though. There's, there's an assistant <laughs> vice principal, multiple assistant vice principals. And well, there's oh, my high be... school, my high school had multiple assistant vice principals. Wait, really? You had, I, you had, so I went had, to a very large high school. You had a principal, multiple vice principals, and then assistant vice principals. Yeah. Wow. Assistant to the vice principal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It was an assistant to. <laughs> okay. All right, that's a bigger high school than I, um, I went to. Uh, before we move on, Tasha, you mentioned the the line of uh, gave you him to see him eat and not see you fed, which is a great line. And I love, love, love the follow up to that where uh, where he says, you know, that's very well put. And and Brandon says, yes, accelerated English. <laughs> he was the teacher. And it's just such a it's like a, a beautiful little acknowledgement of like. Yes, he's not talking the way a teenager does. It's like, oh, he's just he's just very accelerated. It's our apparently everyone else in this film. Yeah, there are all of these just like little tiny textual reminders that in case you've forgotten, this is a high school where they they reference, you know, specific teachers. And then that like the teacher's name comes up again. Like, why couldn't I reach you during a crisis? Uh, you know, our English teacher uh, took my cell phone away like that kind of thing. They're just these these little pokes in case you forget the setting because you get too embedded in kind of the fantasy world. Here's something I'm curious about. Have have any of the rest of you guys uh, watched Cowboy Bebop? No, I saw that was an influence. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, I've I've only seen a couple episodes years and years and years ago, but I, I also know the the reference. So uh, take it away, Tasha. Yeah, it's. I'm just assuming Scott hasn't no. seen. <laughs> I don't I don't know a ton about it. I like when I ran across it, I I started like digging through his old interviews trying to find some place where he'd elucidated it in any kind of detail. I mean, I just I guess for for people who didn't read all of the same things we read as prep, he's put Cowboy Bebop the anime series on kind of his list of influences alongside Spaghetti Westerns and the Coen Brothers and uh, a bunch of other things. And to me, like the influence that I see here, I I see Joseph Gordon-Levitt is just really kind of in a way similar to Spike Spiegel, the main mm-hmm. character of Cowboy Bebop, visually in terms of kind of the long lean body and the shaggy hair that's always in his face, and the kind of triangular face and the sharp chin. And his his kind of like effortless cool, which like hides this deep seated grief. It's all a very Spike Spiegel thing. But overall, the the series, it's the series is so much about music, like each episode is built around a different kind of music. And the whole series itself is kind of built around the idea of kind of like experimental hard hitting jazz and kind of like the the crazy wild rhythms of jazz creeping into the way people move and the way people talk and the way people live. And I, I feel like that's part of what we're sensing here, just that sort of rhythm. The soundtrack to this uh, movie is is very interesting. There's some sort of very odd instrumentation and and kind of odd rhythms that happen. Maybe never more so than uh, when the stoners <laughs> behind Coffee and Pie, oh my, are sitting in one of them playing with a straw mm-hmm. and putting a little straw <laughs> whistling into into the music. Well, and keep in mind too that there's a lot. Again, if you think about this movie as a calling card movie, there's a lot of zagging away from the indie zig. You know what I mean? Like there's just a lot. And the score is one of those things. It's like your typical indie soundtrack is just a plaintive acoustic guitar. And like that's not going to be the direction that Johnson is going. And I mean, nothing in this movie is what you expect when you sit down in a movie in Sundance. It's the opposite of all that stuff. And there's kind of just a you know, a contrarian excitement to that. I guess I want to wrap up just kind of by talking about like the physicality of this movie. I, I'm thinking about spaces like the pins little basement office with its horrible wood paneling or, <laughs> you know, the relative. Which I think was the only constructed set. I think everything else was location. Yeah, and you can easily see how that set could be constructed because all you need is some wood paneling and a space. Yeah. <laughs> yep. uh, it's it's a very artificial 
feeling space, really. Um, but the things like that and like that that area behind the uh, the high school where Pin and Brendan most often hang out, the area by the dumpsters where Brendan eats his lunch <laughs> because lunch is complicated. What else? The parking lots where the fight takes place or where the car confrontation takes place and just sort of that that sense of like this is the closest these California suburbanites get to like the big open plains of a Sergio Leone Western. I'm I'm curious whether any of the other settings like visually really stand out for you. Oh, I really like the school, the exterior of the school um, and uh, the way that plays out in the chase in particular, uh, the foot foot race. Oh, that foot. Oh, yeah. Speaking of sound, the... the yeah, that's not music. And, uh, that, that's foley, but the the sound, uh, the footsteps in that in that chase are out of control. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a really exciting scene. Just basically having, I guess it's a California high school thing where you can actually have uh, everything outside. Your outdoor lockers, lockers. outdoor lockers. Wow, I, I, I love the sight of outdoor lockers in a movie because I know we're in California. <laughs> and, 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 and in this specific case, uh, it's Johnson's high school. Yes. Yeah. It's, oh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so Johnson uh, and Wes Anderson both made movies at their own school. I wonder if there's their yeah. third they made, make a trend here. They, they went to very different schools. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Which say probably a lot about them as as uh, as filmmakers and as people mm. too, in terms of like where they're where they're coming from. But uh, yeah, I really like the exterior of the school and and the way it. I, you know, it's just you know, there's only a, f- a handful of locations, and it's just about getting the the, the absolute maximum amount of impact that you can out of all of them and i think he does it i also like the intersection that the phone booth is at and the phone booth was also something that had to be constructed for the yeah. for the film um <laughs> or probably just found and plopped there there were probably still phone booths hanging around at, at, in, in 2004 uh when they were when they were filming i like the pens um, minivan i like the uh the, it has a nice nice lamp in the back of it <laughs> oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, that's that's where uh, you didn't want to hit any no curbs, curves or bumps. Do you want to hit with, with that lamp? Especially with yeah. with Brendan standing up the entire time, respectfully, because there's not really a place for him to sit. But he's standing with his neck crooked to the side <laughs> mm-hmm. and his like the side of his head pressed up against uh, the the ceiling. Like that that movie could have ended earlier in tragedy if that hit a speed bump. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Just real quick to go back to to the phone booth, I do sort of like the idea of a phone booth in 2005 calling a cell phone borrowed from Brain's mom, <laughs> you know, like it just it feels like a, a sort of encapsulation of the of the of the genre mashup we have here, you know, this like very old school phone booth calling a a cell phone you know that it was still a pretty new technology at the time and teenagers were just getting them i i I, well i guess i i had a cell phone in like 2001 you know that may be more of a remnant of johnson having written this in the in the late 90s you know and it just taking a while to to get done but that's obviously not a not a setting more props i guess but but the the combination of phone booth and cell phone i think is uh kind of in keeping with the what this film is doing as far as combining uh different elements i mean i think it is still part of the setting i think it all still does come down to what he said about building a world because this Mm -hmm. would be a very different world if people had cell phones if you know people were just texting each other saying hey brendan's all upset and he's on his way over don't tell him anything like (laughs) a lot of the story would proceed very differently i guess if we're talking settings though we we probably shouldn't neglect the giant space brawling mansion where that house party right. takes place so many candles on the floor it's a real uh, <laughs> real hazard <laughs> yeah apparently he found a, a businessman who would let him come and shoot in the guy's uh, house which was under construction at the time it, it wasn't complete and that's why there's all the detritus everywhere that's why the place feels so like cavernous and furnitureless and and incomplete which I think just really adds a lot to those scenes. Like it, the the party feels a lot more ad hoc for mostly not taking place. Like the library spaces where Laura confronts Brendan feel complete, but a lot of the other places just sort of feel like hollowed out, like somebody's in the process of moving out or moving in or like the whole place is being torn down, which just thematically fits really well with where the whole film is psychologically. Going back to what I was saying about the the phone booth and cell phone, I think the sort of collision of old school tropes and new school ones will definitely come into play again when we are talking about Knives Out. 
So we can perhaps revisit that next week. Well, I don't think we could get a more perfect segue than that. You've just you've <laughs> taken all of the the tropes of conversation and flipped them on their head to arrive in a new place, Genevieve. Congratulations. <laughs> So yeah, we'll have more to say next week when we talk about Brick in connection with Knives Out. And in the meantime, we're going to take a break and then come back with feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Uh, recently, we launched into a long conversation about modern film trailers, what they give away or conceal, and who makes them. We have a response to that here with a question attached. Genevieve? Adam writes, I just listened to the latest episode and felt compelled to jump in on the question of how movie trailers so specifically frame a viewer's expectation of the film, and more often than not, ruin the larger beats and twists for those more savvy viewers. In light of that, I'm curious how you all feel about the marketing for Avengers Endgame. Marvel used an intentionally obfuscating style of marketing built on misdirection and building anticipation. Now, for such a huge film, not having a trailer that reveals many story beats is refreshing. I think it also reflects Marvel's confidence in their films and their awareness of audience expectations. After 22 films, most audiences know what to expect on a tonal level and understand the basic rhythms of their stories so well that keeping a narrative a mystery really built up anticipation of the film to a feverish pitch. Anyway, I'm curious what you all think of that approach and how that might lead to a similar form of marketing for movies with such well-established IPs that even the common audience goer understands the baseline of the film. I think the observation here is that Marvel could get away with it because everyone was going to go see Endgame, whether or not they knew the details from the trailer. It's kind of key because... You know, I I think more films should be confident to not reveal that much and just want people to come see it. But but um, it's certainly having the insulation of being a sequel to one of the biggest movies ever that was also number twenty two in a in a series that grew increasingly popular with each entry apparently uh, or seemingly at times. You can probably just put up a black screen that said the Avengers uh, end game and and a date and gotten away with it. And in a similar vein, the recent Star Wars trailers have been like like this too. You know, it's just like here's a glimpse of a character, here's a glimpse of another character, here's a you know there's there's no real attempt to hint at what the the plot is going to be you know to the point where we're a couple weeks away from rise of skywalker yeah rise yeah. of skywalker and and i don't think anyone has any better idea of what that title means than they did a month ago after having seen all the trailers you know uh, they have ideas but no sort of confirmation uh on a plot level via the trailers well i think and also with something like Star Wars in Avengers as well is that is that they know there's going to be so much scrutiny of it almost frame by frame that you can kind of plan it to that yeah for that you know you kind of th- you can kind of think about it like what are some shots that are going to to intrigue people enough to actually just sure. write write full pieces about you know a couple of images they see in this trailer yeah, going, um, going to Pruder film on on trailers is just such a expected thing from so many sites to do now you <laughs> he know? loves it look at, you, i can tell look at how much he loves it <laughs> no i just did it i mean i mean i don't i'm, I'm neither here nor there yeah. on it but I, but I just i had to do it for a former job and it's just like you know you know i don't know <laughs> well, I mean, I think you, you know as it just is a different thing in terms of like what you what you want and hope for as a consumer of of uh, cinematic art and what um suits the business needs of the company putting out these Movies. I mean, the same goes with posters. I mean, we, we we get so frustrated with the artlessness of studio posters, but but from their perspective, it's like, well, we got to do a we got to do our job, which is to show people all the people who are in the movie in some sort of stupid portrait form, you know, um, you know. So it's really just matters. It really has to, you know. I think you just end up appreciating, um, you know, innovative workarounds or art, art artful posters or artful trailers that kind of can give you just a, a taste for what the film is going to be like without telling you everything the whole, every revealing every story beat before you even see it and it's really rough because you look at something like cabin in the woods which is a movie that lives on its twists and it's it's unexpected the unexpected places it goes like that is a movie the first trailers were very like arch and and wry and non-revealing and opaque and i like I, I dragged a bunch of people to that movie because I loved it so much, but every single one of them was resistant because they'd seen the ads and were expecting a completely different movie than than what it was. And when you have, we we talked in the last conversation about trailers about 
trailers for movies like The Witch and how, you know, being deceptive to get people uh, in the doors leads to anger. But then at the same time, being deceptive in order to not give things away keeps the people that most want to see the movies out of the out of the movie. So I like I, I think you're right. I think that it's as much as I loved the way Endgame handled Let's Tell You Nothing. It's really hard to get away with that unless you already know that everybody's going to come see the movie. But leaving aside trailers for a moment, we talked a lot about Brick. This episode is running long, so we're going to cut the second feedback letter that we would normally discuss here and instead say we we get a lot of feedback letters that are very long and, and very in-depth, uh, and we always feel bad when we have to cut them down for listeners into uh, like a couple of paragraphs that are uh, a little more accessible. So we're still holding on to a bunch of feedback letters that we haven't answered because of that depth. And we also have been getting more letters lately that don't address specific films that kind of address these bigger topics in films. And we do love those. We do have a fun time discussing them. So we're thinking about maybe doing a a bonus episode in here somewhere that's just about answering letters. If you have letters to send in about episodes, about past episodes, sometimes we get letters that say, I know this was, you did this one two months ago, but I just listened to it, Uh, which makes perfect sense because sometimes you don't get to a movie until it comes out on video. If you've got questions about older episodes or older movies, if you've got questions about film in general, if you've just got topics you'd like us to discuss, this would be a really good time to send them in ahead of uh, us looking at the idea of doing a bonus episode. So if you are inclined to do that, uh, leave us a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll jump 13 years forward to Ryan Johnson's latest film, Knives Out. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then... Be careful at lunch, y'all. Lunch is a lot of things. Lunch is difficult. Mm